Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. Lately, I've been, you know, really feeling the cumulative effect of two years of pandemic times. Yes. And just feeling like I don't really know how much longer I can kind of take it on my own. So I have made the decision to go back to therapy, mm-hmm. um, which I'm like pretty happy about. Um, I kind of resisted it for a long time because I feel like I just went to therapy for pandemic times concerns. Um, my last course of therapy ended in March of 2021, but in March of 2021, you know, when I left therapy and I was like, yeah, I'm feeling good. It was like, my mindset was like, hey, we're going to get those vaccines in like June or July. So like, you know, I only really need like four months worth of supplies to like hold out on the rest of this siege. And here we are like nearly a year later and it's like, oh God, the supplies have run out. That big orc with the weird bomb has blown open the the, the walls. <laughs> like we need the Rohirrim over that hill, like really, really quickly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I'm going back. So yeah, hopefully I'll find that really helpful. Today is a nice sunny Sunday and I'm feeling pretty good like today specifically. Uh, how are you, Sarah? Oh, the burden of a uterus has reared its head, Mm. but you know, doing all right. (laughs) (laughs) Waiting as the meds kick in. Yes. Uh, I am excited for today's movie. One thing about that we kind of talk about with the premise of this podcast, um, going through every horror movie ever made, we get to see the development of the genre. We get to see the rise and falls of many trends. Mm -hmm. And um, it also means that we are able to identify when uh, there's a first. And I feel like this is the first meta horror film we've had. Yes, that's actually true yes um there have been meta horror adjacent mm-hmm. movies um and the concept of a meta movie or something like that isn't new because no. there are plays about plays yeah and like you know by this point like this is 1958 so we've had stuff like singing in the rain and like you know we've had movies about making movies um certainly gosh i can't remember the name of it but in the 1930s there was a movie about like murders that were happening on a movie set and um it was a mystery movie not a horror movie but um it's sort of horror adjacent because it stars bella lugosi david manners and edward van sloan oh yeah i remember us talking about that yeah um but yeah this is the first time we've had a meta movie about horror movies that is itself a horror movie. Yeah. And yeah, that's a really good uh, point to bring up, Sarah, because of course, probably like the ultimate meta horror movie is Scream and it's Mm -hmm. like various sequels, but it's certainly like, especially in the 90s, which kind of had a very like cynical, self-aware kind of vibe, um, it became more and more of a thing, Uh, you know, and also... um, 
just so nobody tweets at me like cabin in the woods is the other like big meta one that comes to mind but yeah this is this the is the first this is the first it's time to get meta sarah <laughs> no more facebook no more instagram only just the meta. metaverse yeah uh well what are we watching today today sarah we are watching how to make a monster from 1958 directed by herbert strock now let me pause you right there uh i'm pretty sure we know how to make a monster frankenstein showed us how to make a monster mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but do you know how to make a monster with like makeup oh okay i didn't understand i That's... thought you were going for a different innuendo no 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 that 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 comes much later <laughs> so tell us about it well um this is a film from producer herman cohen uh writers herman cohen and Avon candle and director herbert strock and it's the follow-up to their other teen monster movies that we've been seeing um for cohen and candle this is the next thing they did after blood of dracula strock had directed some television since blood of dracula but this was his next theatrical film so yeah this is really tied in with the previous aip teen monster movies so we've talked about those on the show before in previous episodes but if there's any listeners who would like a quick refresher uh sarah what's the down low on teen monsters absolutely uh if you want to listen to those episodes um uh, i was a teenage werewolf we covered in episode 213 and i was a teenage frankenstein is episode 224 now before i dive into like a recap of those films i also wanted to just kind of like ask the question why teens? Mm. Um, so we dive into that question in episode 213. Uh, the short answer is culturally, uh, the teens are the ones spending money because they have excess money to spend. Um, they don't have to worry about spending it on the mortgage uh, and they have their own jobs now. So they can kind of do what they want with it as well as they have the inclination to go out to theaters Uh, With the rise of television, that's kind of taking the, I'll say the adult, like the parent audience, whereas teens are looking for a place where they can go for dates, they can go to hang out with their friends, Uh, they're looking for recreational activities, and theaters are one of the opportunities for that. American International Pictures hit on teens as their target demographic because of ongoing focus groups, and that... Research culminated in the idea for I Was a Teenage Werewolf. That film would be written by writing pair Herman Cohen and Aben Kendall under the alias Ralph Thornton. And despite the 30-year age difference between the two, um, they seem to work really well together. Cohen bringing the screenwriting and like silver screen experience, um, as he's also a producer, and Kendall bringing the what I'll call broader writing experience, having um, written and published novels, plays, and television episodes. I Was a Teenage Werewolf was written to be from the teen perspective with adults as the antagonists in their lives. And that was explicit uh, from Cohen. 
The movie features Tony, played by Michael Landon, having a hard time and a loose temper. He gets in trouble with the law and the school administration, and so he's recommended to go see psychologist Dr. Alfred Brandon, played by Whit Bissell. However, Brandon finds Tony to be the perfect specimen for his experiments and uses hypnotherapy to cast Tony's mind back to the primal age when he was a wolf. So, you know, some like Bridie Murphy stuff up in here. Unknowingly, um, between going to parties and going on dates, Tony ends up turning into this werewolf and attacks the local teen population. By the end of the movie, he heads back to the doctor for help. The doctor is like, no, this is exactly my plan. And now I will turn you on purpose on camera um, by using a loud sound in order to prove that my theory works. So he turns Tony into the werewolf. Tony attacks the doctor and kills him. Now the police have been tracking Tony and so they end up shooting him at the doctor's office. The other times when Tony would turn into a werewolf would be, you know, loud sounds tended to be the trigger, but uh, hormones um, in general. Now, I Was a Teenage Werewolf was shot over seven days, and its budget was $82,000, which was split with the um, second half of the double feature, which was Invasion of the Sossamen, another teen-focused movie, but this time sci-fi. And that double feature made $2 million. Mm-hmm. So AIP's eyes lit up with dollar signs and put Cohen and Candle to work on a follow-up. So they would end up writing I Was a Teenage Frankenstein under the alias Kenneth Langtree, and that was released later this year. So 1957 is where we are. Um, They would also write the second half of that double feature, uh, which would be Blood of Dracula, and that would be under the same um, alias of Rolf Thornton. So for I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, the teen element was there in that it's a teen creature played by Gary Conway, Um, but the story remained focused on Dr. Frankenstein as it's adapting the Frankenstein novel. Whit Bissell returned to play this Dr. Frankenstein, and ironically, in keeping the focus on Dr. Frankenstein, but having a teenage creature, the movie kept in line thematically with Mary Shelley's original novel of like failed parenthood and bad parents which is just like a really interesting idea director Herbert Strzok was brought onto this project uh he had cut his teeth as an editor on films like Donovan's Brain and then he began directing for television he transitioned to directing feature-length films with the movie The Magnetic Monster and we noted in I was a teenage Frankenstein that his editor experience informs a lot of his directorial choices, particularly with um, I was a teenage Frankenstein's colored ending. Now, both I was a teenage Frankenstein and Blood of Dracula were shot over four weeks with a combined budget of $90,000 and together they made $310,000. So not teen werewolf money, but a success nonetheless, which powered this team forward into making today's film. Yeah, so while this team has made three teen monster movies with a werewolf, a Frankenstein monster, and a vampire, or a Dracula, (laughs) um, this movie follows up the werewolf and Frankenstein movies. 
um, mm. specifically. So as we've hinted, the storyline of this movie is extremely meta. Um, it depicts the shooting of the film Teenage Werewolf versus Teenage Frankenstein. Which is like, you know, that totally makes sense given the Monster Rally movies that Universal did. Right, exactly. And this is depicted as being a movie that is coming about because I Was a Teenage Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein were such big hits for American International Studios, which in the story of the film is depicted as being like a mix of AIP and Universal. Sure. Um, It's sort of like if AIP had the history of Universal as opposed to being a studio that had only been around for three years at this point. The lead character of this movie is makeup man Pete Dumond, who is depicted as a cross between Philip Shear, who did the makeup in the teen monster movies and in this movie, Paul Blaisdell, who of course <laughs> created all the wonderful paper mache alien monsters for AIP's horror sci-fi pictures, mostly with Roger Corman. And he's also a bit of a mix of Jack Pierce um, being depicted as like a makeup man with a very long career defined by horror movies who's kind of been like pushed aside by his studio. Mm -hmm. At one point in the movie, uh, visitors are taken to the set of Horrors of the Black Museum, which is depicted as being in production, which it was by the time this movie was in theaters because it's the next Herman Cohen movie. (laughs) The film stars character actor Robert H. Harris in the lead role as Dumond, born in 1911 as Robert Hurwitz in Manhattan. He began acting at the Yiddish Art Theater in his teens. By 1937, he was appearing on Broadway, and later he became a repertory theater director. In the 1950s, he appeared mostly on television, usually as shady or villainous characters. And he also made occasional film appearances until he retired in 1977, passing away in 1981 at age 70. Gary Conway reprises his role from Teenage Frankenstein in a way. Um, He's playing fictional actor Tony Mantell, who plays the role of the teenage Frankenstein in the movie, like in the world of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So he's kind of reprising his role and he's also kind of playing himself. After his AIP days, uh, he would go on to a prolific television career, most notably the lead on the Irwin Allen show Land of the Giants in the late 1960s. However, boy star Michael Landon would not be returning um, having... Oh, we saw he died. <laughs> he died at the end of the werewolf movie, so he can't come back. No, like... <laughs> it has to be a different werewolf, Ben. N- no, I mean, like, in the meta... <laughs> in, the, in the double meta sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the actor, Michael Landon, is not returning um, because he had used his AIP debut hit as a springboard to mainstream success, and he wasn't going to shoot himself in the foot returning to the, like, AIP pond. So replacing him is actor Gary Clark, who's playing the fictional actor Larry Drake, who plays the teenage werewolf in the movie. Born in 1933 in Los Angeles to French and Mexican parents, Clark began acting in high school and appeared in local community theater. 
His first film was 1958's Drag Strip Riot, a teen gang movie that was also the final film of Fay Ray. Oh. Originally, Clark was just supposed to play a nameless gang member, but he got bumped up to the lead male role when the previous actor got sick. Like suspiciously got sick? No, or? Okay. no. <laughs> uh, that, of course, was an AIP film, uh, one of their juvenile delinquent movies. And so he ended up appearing in like a lot of AIP movies. Um, then he had an extensive career on television. And he's probably best remembered today for his role on the long-running Western television series, The Virginian. Is he the Virginian? No, he is not. Okay. Appearing as a police captain in this movie is old Morris Ankrum, who is age 62 and reaching the end of his acting career. Ankrum was a that guy of the studio era. We've seen him before in films like Invaders from Mars, Zombies of Moratau, and Giant from the Unknown, but he was all over the sci-fi and Western movies back in the day. He ended up passing away in 1964. Also appearing in a supporting role is Robert Shane, who's best known to us as the mad scientist in the Neanderthal Man. Oh, great. Uh, but is best known to audiences of the time as Inspector Henderson on the Adventures of Superman television show. In a fun cameo role as himself <laughs> is a 24-year-old actor, John Ashley. So this is a guy who just sort of like stumbled into his career i would say okay um while he was in college he took a vacation to los angeles and while he was in los angeles he happened to meet john wayne's press agent and they got along really well and so john wayne's press agent took him to meet john wayne john wayne got along really well with ashley and thought that he had what it took and introduced ashley to william castle William Castle then got Ashley an audition with AIP, who signed him to an initial four-picture deal based on the strength of his Elvis Presley impersonation. <laughs> sure, if they're making all these teen movies. Mm -hmm. uh, James Nicholson, one of the two men behind AIP, uh, his daughters were real into uh, John Ashley. So Nicholson made sure that he was put into a lot of AIP's teen movies, which would usually also feature Ashley like singing a song yeah. that could then be promoted as a hit single that could then launch like a record career for him. He made the transition in the 60s from juvenile delinquent movies to AIP's um, teen beach party movies of the 1960s. And then by the 70s, he had transitioned from acting to being an independent movie producer, uh, producing a lot of horror movies in that period. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind that like even in the horror movies that AIP is putting out, they're still like, let's press pause for a quick song. Right. It happens in Teen Werewolf and in Blood of Dracula. That's right. Because late in his acting career, Ashley had shot a film in the Philippines, um, in the 70s, when he was a movie producer, his experience with filming in the Philippines led to him being hired as the Philippines government liaison to the shooting of Apocalypse Now, which shot in the Philippines. What? Um, Wild. Then later in his career, Ashley was one of the uh, main producers of the television series The A-Team, and he was even the voice of the narration in the opening credits. And uh, he passed away in 1997 at age 62 of a heart attack. Now, 
Ed Wood's widow, Kathy, claims that this film's premise began as an Ed Wood script meant for Bella Lugosi as an old, out-of-work horror actor who can't get work anymore and takes revenge on the studio, and that Samuel Arkoff of AIP stole this idea and changed it to be about a makeup man. Arkoff, of course, denied this allegation and says that Herman Cohen came up with this idea entirely on his own. There's really no way to corroborate anyone's story here. Here's my theory. Mm. Ed Wood definitely came up with that idea. And Herman Cohen also came up with this idea. Mm -hmm. They are two different ideas. Right, yeah. (laughs) The film was released on July 1st, 1958 as part of a double bill with Roger Corman's Teenage Caveman, uh, (laughs) which was a prehistoric adventure film that Corman had shot under the title prehistoric world but aip changed the title at the last moment much to corman's annoyance sure particularly since the actor playing the lead caveman in the movie is like in his 30s (laughs) yeah yeah at least like all of the people who have been playing teens have been like teenish teenish yeah like not actually teens but like in their 20s yeah that, but I understand why AIP made this change. Mm. I also understand why Roger is upset. Mm-hmm. How to Make a Monster was promoted as the A picture in the double bill. It had a budget of $100,000 compared to Teenage Caveman's $70,000. Oh, usually they split what, like, costs, so... Yeah, and huh. given that one of them was set in dinosaur times and one of them was set at a movie studio um it's interesting that how to make a monster had the higher budget and was seen as the uh the lead the lead picture yeah uh so today how to make a monster is available on blu-ray from scream factory and you can stream it on tubi i feel like tubi's been our main source for any aip picture for the most part yeah yeah i'm actually really excited for this movie uh i really like meta movies Mm. um i love when movies play with like what's real what's not what's diegetic what's not so this is totally up my alley awesome well folks hopefully you can watch along you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss how to make a monster from 1958 directed by herbert strock see you on the other side everybody Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching How to Make a Monster from 1958, directed by Herbert Strzok. First thoughts, Ben? I really enjoyed this movie. It is a lot of fun, especially if you know some of the um, meta history, I guess, around the horror genre like we do. Yeah, if you listen to Scream Scene... You will probably like this movie. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Lots of little, like, in-jokes that if you 
are aware of like the industry and horror's role in it. Like at one point there's a throwaway line of like, don't worry, horror monsters will come back again. Just wait till like the next foreign picture Mm -hmm. and the cycle starts again. Right. Yeah, it's good. So why don't you let us know what happens in the story? Murder. Fair. Um, Despite the title, there is no like step-by-step guide for how to make a monster. If you are looking for like a, a recipe for making a monster, uh, this is not the film for you. Yeah. Pete Dumond is head of makeup at American International Studios, and he's been there for about 25 years with his assistant, Rivero. Now, when Dumond is introduced, um, he's talking about how much he enjoys working with teens. Teens are so fun. They're really like... Up for anything. Up for anything. They're ambitious. They have energy for like whatever we're doing. And he especially enjoys working with Tony Mantel and Larry Drake, who are playing Teenage Frankenstein and Teenage Werewolf, respectively, in this new film that AIS is putting together called um, Teen Werewolf and Teen Frankenstein Meet. I think it's I think it's just you like teenage werewolf meets teenage frankenstein yeah yeah but ais is bought out by nbn associates a company from new york damn new yorkers and the new owners clayton and nixon tell dumond that this is his last picture Uh, he is being fired in favor of the new studio direction of musicals and teen comedies Hmm. dumond in response to this, plans to use his creations, his children, to bring the studio down on the new executives' heads. Using a special foundation that he creates using unknown chemicals Mm. that block the mental synapses, something, something, etc., Dumond uses it to hypnotize Larry to kill the executive known as Nixon, while he is in his werewolf makeup and through the special foundation and hypnosis, Larry doesn't remember anything. Now police are baffled. Um, they're like, we, we don't know what to do, but when a uh, security guard lets slip to demand that he himself is working on the case to try to get ahead in his own line of work um, and has certain leads that the police don't know about demand puts on makeup on himself, and kills that security guard. Finally, before Teenage Werewolf meets Teenage Frankenstein raps, Dumond uses his foundation on Tony and gets him to murder the executive Clayton in um, Clayton's home garage while in the creature makeup. Unfortunately, as Tony is escaping, uh, there is a witness and... This witness goes to police, says it was a monster straight out of the silver screen. Um, the police question even further uh, Dumond and Rivera. And Rivera is shown to like crack under the pressure. Uh, the police are definitely like pushing a line. But, you know, Rivera kind of cracks a bit and Dumond begins losing confidence in him. And then with further investigations, the police find uh, specialized makeup underneath Clayton's fingernails uh leading them to go ask dumond and rivera like what the fuck and to test their own makeup meanwhile um 
Dumont's office has been cleaned out, so he organizes a little mini rap party with Dumont, with himself, Rivera, and Tony and Larry. Dumont brings them all to his house. Rivera's clearly been here before. Uh, they've been colleagues for 25 years. and Both men uh, have like no wives, no families, and live alone. Yes. So they're gay, is what we're saying. Um, so they bring Tony and Larry to Dumond's house and into this room where Dumond has wax replicas of his past creatures. Now, as they enter, Dumond has an existing candle and then he like lights candles throughout like the rest candelabras. of the Yeah. And uh, the room lights up and we are suddenly in color. Yes. Um, according to Ben, the Tubi version um, messed up a bit of the color part. Uh, apparently the color is supposed to start as the candles are lit, but the Tubi version, the restoration uh, information got mixed and they uh, start the color from the start of that reel when they arrive at the house. Yeah, that just has to do with like they probably were working from the negative, which would have had to have been in color and just didn't like know that that photochemical effect was supposed to be applied um, to give you that effect. Um, it's still like when you watch on Tubi, like effective, it's like, oh, wow, we're suddenly in color. Um, but it's not quite as like nice and subtle as the the way it was originally shown mm -hmm. now tony and larry are like uh <laughs> this is what the fuck and rivera's like yeah this is his special room and dumond is like yes these are the heads of my children replicas of course he basically describes this room as if it's like uh like a shrine yeah right? like it's his place where he goes when he needs help from a power greater than himself like he he prays to God here with all of these <laughs> Paul Blaisdell monsters because yeah there's Bula and there's like the saucer man and there's the she creature like all of these heads are like old Paul Blaisdell monsters. So the boys are thoroughly creeped out. The boys being Tony and Larry, and when Dumond and Rivera leave to go get refreshments, the boys try to leave, um, and they are surprised to find that they are locked in this room. Dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, Rivera is talking to Dumont and he's like, you know, I don't trust those boys. Uh, I want to leave to Arizona and just lay low for a while because I don't think those boys can handle any kind of pressure that the police throw at them. And Dumont's like, yes, it's the boys I need to worry about, not you. Yeah, Rivera's basically like, yeah, so, you know, if I leave town and go hang out in Arizona for a vacation for a bit. And while I'm gone, the police just happen to catch up with you. You'll know it was the boy's fault and not mine. So long story short, uh, Dumond sees that Rivera can no longer be trusted and he stabs him. Dumond with the refreshments, you know, with a couple of Cokes, <laughs> heads back to the boys and they're like, hey, no, we want to leave. Uh, while they were left alone in the room, they started talking about like, yeah, was Dumond being weird over the last few weeks? I feel like, like you've been mind controlled lately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they're like, okay, um, we just want to leave. We just want to go. Please just let us leave this house. And Dumond kind of falls apart. Um, he's like, oh, what? You you don't have any like respect for what I've done for your careers? This is the thanks I get. After mind controlling you, next you'll be going to the police. And the boys are like, what the 
what do the police have to do with this? What? And Dumont's like, well, you know that there have been three murders. Each of us here had a role to play in each. And the boys are like, what the fuck? So Dumont pulls a knife on the boys. In the struggle, a candelabra falls and the room catches on fire. Dumont goes, no, my children. And we get some neat close-ups of um, never, at least as far as I know, previously seen monster yeah, heads. All the monster heads that we actually see like melt are like I think made new for this movie. The Paul Blaisdell ones don't get close-ups of being destroyed. So Yeah, they're conveniently just like a little further away from the fire that starts. Mm-hmm. Um and the boys are trying to get out. Just in time, the police arrive and they get the boys out and they're like, Well, where's Dumond? Where's Rivera? And they're like, I don't know where Rivera is, but Dumond's in the fire. <laughs> the end. <laughs> He burns up and perishes with his children. Yes. So I thought this was intelligently written, well-directed, and that it had good performances. I also really enjoyed the music by Paul Dunlap. Uh, He scored the other Teenage Monster movies as well. But I thought this movie had like a really strong like main theme in the score. Yeah, I think he did a fairly good job. Um, I agree that it was like well written, but I felt like towards the end it all just kind of fell apart a little bit. Oh, I sort of disagree. Um, I do think that like as much as the meta part of this movie is really fun and novel, the like actual beats of the plot are very predictable. Yes. You know, like you kind of know what's going to happen, you know, as it happens. I did appreciate that the police showed up at the end and rescued the boys because we've had a few movies that have like police investigation subplots that don't go anywhere like the police don't show up at the end yeah and so i was good to see them show up here um especially given that like you know the evidence against dumond like (laughs) is pretty overwhelming even before you analyze his chemicals yeah that being said, the cops are pretty ineffective. Mm, yeah. um, they consistently say in like scenes where it's just them that they are at a loss for what to do. At one point, even after the scene where one guy is like basically bullying Rivera, mm-hmm. um, trying to get him to crack, the guy says like, yeah, I was just taking pot shots. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Like I, I'm just searching for like anything. Yeah. And so <laughs> that kind of surprised me because I was like, what? showing the cops bullying people without any like evidence to support that tactic. I was also surprised that like, okay, Dumond, when he's first introduced, he's like, teens are great. And I was like, ah, because we're supposed to be like, yes, all adults are awful except for this one who thinks that teens are great. Except it turns out he's always been really weird and like unhinged. Oh, yeah. He's always had this room. Yeah. And even when we meet him, he's talking about like creating replicas of this makeup. And the way that it's done in that very first scene is like, yeah, you want to document your work. You don't realize that he's taking those replicas of his work and like hanging them up inside his own shrine. Well, the thing about Pete is that like, and this is why like it, it should have really been obvious to everyone who was behind any of this um, (laughs) is that like Pete is weird and creepy from like the get go. 
I think a lot of people at the start of the movie, you know, the idea is that they like write it off as like he's eccentric because like he makes monster makeups. But like, you know, in his first scene, he's like giving monologues about how like making monster makeup is sort of like being God and like <laughs> stuff. Right. So it's like, <laughs> hey, Pete, you're a little strange. Um, but I really liked Robert Harris's performance as Pete Dumont. I thought it was really strong, um, much better than we tend to get in movies of this nature. Yeah, it's um, the role. And I think his performance as well had um semblance to other performances we've seen um lionel atwill Mm -hmm. comes to mind um kind of one-to-one because of the uh mysteries of the wax museum parallels at the end but also like you can see george zuko Mm -hmm. doing this but it doesn't feel like robert harris is like just copycatting or phoning it in like he's trying like he's doing his own thing yeah absolutely he really gives a good performance i did want to yeah like address that lionel atwill bit because i felt that same thing And I think that, like, I could see how this movie has overlap with Ed Wood's interests. Mm -hmm. And definitely, like, I could believe Wood coming up with a similar idea for Lugosi. It makes a lot of sense, and it plays to a lot of his, like, pet passions. But even if the idea was stolen from Wood, I don't think the screenplay was. Um, No. This script isn't, like, high art or anything, but I think it's pretty good. It's much better than Wood's work. I also think it's a lot better than the previous three Teenage Monster movies. And I think that Pete's character like doesn't read like a Legosi role that's been rewritten. It reads like Lionel Atwell or Vincent Price in Mystery of the Wax Museum or House of Wax. Like they're very similar characters with the whole like these are my creations you can't take my children away from me yeah and i think as well if you want to look to the real life inspiration Mm. it definitely feels more like how jack pierce was treated by the studios rather than how bella lugosi was treated yeah absolutely because like as much as wood was like a big supporter of lugosi like lugosi had sort of issues that contributed to the decline of his career it wasn't just like oh horror movies are out of season we're getting rid of you um which was definitely more what happened to jack pierce for sure absolutely um and to transition to the makeup itself in the movie uh it's really good the makeup on our teen werewolf and teen frankenstein in this movie is exactly what you see in those past movies yes um and that like a makes sense in the context of the movie because they're supposed to be doing a sequel to yeah. those movies, but also B, it doesn't look like a half-assed version of, of trying to replicate it. It looks like just as good yes. as when you see it there. Yeah. Plus, you get to see a new makeup job with Dumont's like quick getup when he goes to kill the security guard, and that is done well. And yeah. you only see it in one scene. Yeah, it's really good. Um. Yeah, I got the impression that the team really wanted to make a good one Mm -hmm. with this. Um, When I say the script is intelligently written, I mean that, like, even if it's predictable in parts and even if, like, maybe they could have, you know, made it less obvious that it was Dumont doing everything. Like, the movie's not structured like a mystery. Like, we're from Dumont's point of view Mm -hmm. the whole time, right? So, you know, even if there's things we could change, everything holds together, right? Like, you go from A to B to C, 
there's nothing really that gets like forgotten or thrown by the wayside. You know, there's rational explanations for like, oh, why did no one hear a fucking werewolf killing Nixon? Well, because he did it in the theater while Nixon was watching the rushes from the werewolf movie. So the sound overlapped. Like there's just a lot of good things like that. Um, You know, part of that comes from the fact that they're writing about life on a movie studio. So I think like those details come through really truthfully. Yeah, there are so many actors and characters, even just like extras walking by. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many other characters who I didn't even touch on. Like we see Larry's girlfriend. They have one scene and it's like well acted. There's one point where Larry's agent goes to Dumont to be like, don't fucking put these dumb ideas that his career is over into his head. Isn't a scene you need for the plot, but is a scene that like makes sense. Because he's trying to get, like, Larry sort of to be... So his mind control, it feels like it's meant to be, like, the power of suggestion. Yeah. Like, if the the boys didn't think that they were maybe, like, under threat or something, maybe it wouldn't have worked as well. Because he sort of convinces them, your career is over and you have to do something about it. And then he mind controls to go kill people, right? And, yeah, when you're watching that scene with him and Larry, I'm thinking, like... No, man, he's going to get a role on Bonanza. He's fine. He's also a teen. Yes. His career is not over. Right, exactly. Um, You know, Dumont's trying to make the argument that he'll be typecast, right? And so, yeah, like the scene with the agent showing up and being like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Like, was very real. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and, and things like the studio guards feel very real. And what's interesting is all of that serves to pad out the time because they're, mm-hmm. the story here is not enough just like what's on paper right as a cheap movie you still have to fill in time and they managed to do that with these moments of like these one-off characters rather than going from point a to point b to point c yeah or like constantly like recapping the plot to each other like Mm -hmm. yeah the movie feels like it takes place in the world right that it's not just like oh here's these three people at a cabin and it feels expansive and you know maybe some of that was like because they were shooting like on location in LA around like sound stages like you know probably not all of these extras are on AIP's payroll they're just like there right but yeah it it comes off really well and devoting that extra time to character moments really helps flesh everything out I thought this movie was well directed there was a lot of like camera moves and like scene constructions that just felt like the director cared a lot of moving parts that they would need to kind of keep on track of as well um even with like the end construction of the movie yeah i think if you're a fan of movies like hail caesar you'll really (laughs) like this movie like it definitely hits that like behind the scenes of the movies feel um you know if you like sunset boulevard like, you'll like this movie. Um, this movie is not as good as those movies. No, no. <laughs> but it'll fair. scratch a similar itch. Yeah, it's got that same kind of feel. The I have to just talk about this. It's it's nothing, but like... Is it John Ashley? No, okay. um, but we can talk about him for sure. No, um, so there's two executives, Nixon and Clayton. And Nixon is this older guy. Looks like he's probably in his 50s or something. And then Clayton is this like younger guy. Looks like he's in his late 20s or early 30s or something around those lines. And Clayton is played by uh, an actor named Pete Maxwell. And he just looks so much like a young Michael Eisner. And it's just 
hilariously distracting and yet very apropos <laughs> to see this like <laughs> Michael Eisner looking motherfucker coming in and be like, yeah, so I've bought your company and I'm going to change its direction and run it into the ground. <laughs> um, and what's funny is like, I looked up some pictures of Pete Maxwell, the actor when he's like older and he still looks like Michael Eisner. Like he looks like older Michael Eisner. And I should have looked up what Michael Eisner looked like when he was young, but regardless, <laughs> it was, it was a little distracting, but a lot of fun. Um, okay. So John Ashley, right. Hello, baby. I'm glad to see you. Might like to see you more, but someone gave you the wrong idea about what you charmed the boy. He's the Elvis adjacent kind of character that we talked about in the context setting. Yeah. He gets a little scene in here because they're filming him performing, right? That's the context about this scene. And also show like this is the direction that the studio wants to move into. Yeah, they're basically like saying that AIS wants to make Elvis Presley movies. Um, So here's Elvis Presley. I mean... John Ashley. And he has like the singing mm-hmm. and like the voice, but there's no charisma on on screen. Like he has no presence. And okay, so this song has him and like the girls dancing around him snapping along to the beat, except everyone is off beat. No one is snapping at the same time or the correct time. Yeah. Um, it's very clear that, like, they must not have had the music playing on set when they filmed it. Like, he's just singing or something. So then they should have had, like, well, A, they should have had something to show the beat because yeah. they're dancing as well. You yeah. think that they would need, you know. Yeah. But, like, snap on beat. Yes. Is, and, and at least, at least at the same time as everyone else he does like the little like leg dance that Elvis presley does yeah, that he yeah. learns from tom hanks but he like from doesn't okay. right <laughs> he doesn't do it very well though no like he's handsome for sure but like he just doesn't have it you yeah know? like he, whatever it is he doesn't have it yeah so you know we wish you luck ashley but uh i'm not holding my breath well I mean, we know exactly what goes on to happen to him, but um, (laughs) I will say that, like, it's sort of interesting to see someone doing, like, an Elvis impersonation, like, during the time when Elvis was at his peak, right? Not, like, a modern-day Elvis impersonation. And I don't know. It kind of helps you realize, like, why Elvis was a big deal. Because I think Elvis gets, like, a lot of flack nowadays because it's like, oh, he stole rock and roll from black people like fuck Elvis or whatever. And I think that causes people to like underestimate him as a performer. But mm-hmm. when you see someone try to do his exact shtick and, and there's just, it's just like, there's just nothing. And it's like, this should work, but it just doesn't. It really helps you understand like, Oh yeah, I guess Elvis was a big deal. <laughs> it reminds me of that moment uh, in uh, like an early Mad Men episode where they replicate that bye bye birdie song, right. with the chick singing uh, to make like an ad or something and it just doesn't work it's and just awful and they're like yeah because she's not Anne margaret <laughs> yeah 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 well let's move on to ranking and see how this film compares to the other teen movies so i liked this better than the three like legit teenage monster movies um i i think part of it is i think it's better made and better written and all the things we've talked about but like a major part of it honestly is that I can buy into like 
I slipped like sodium pentothal into the foundation cream of your makeup. And now I'm going to have you kill people for me so much more than like I've hypnotized you to become a werewolf, you know, like how humans were in the distant past or like whatever the fuck was going on in Blood of Dracula. <laughs> um, so I like this more than those movies. I Was a Teenage Werewolf is currently sitting at number 49. Yeah, and just so it's said, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein is at 59 and Blood of Dracula is at 60. Mm-hmm. And so um, Back from the Dead is right above at 48. And I liked this better than that as well. Um, this just is like so much better constructed. This just like feels like a real movie. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I made my floor 48 uh, below Queen of Spades. And then looking my way up, I came to Mad Love at number 37. Noting movies like Phantom of the Opera as well. Um, Mad Love, Phantom of the Opera, and this movie all kind of have elements of like backstage of show business and like obsession, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mad Love's very cool for a lot of reasons, but I thought maybe this was better because Mad Love is kind of wacky. Personally, I would take Peter Lorre's performance in that over Robert Harris in this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Peter Lorre is, is better in that movie, but like, that's a weird movie. So I just wanted to give the possibility <laughs> that this was better right above Mad Love is Curse of Frankenstein. And this is not as good as Curse of Frankenstein. So that's my range, 37 to 48. Yeah. So I had a hard time comparing it to our past teen movies because, yes, this is better constructed, better written. But similar to Teen Frankenstein, um, the teenage element in How to Make a Monster is like... Less important. Less important. Um, and it just feels like, I don't know, how do you compare the fact that this is our first meta movie versus teens and horror and like the, sure. the way that those trends continue on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think teens and horror definitely has the bigger impact um, in terms of just like what horror movies are about from mm -hmm. now on. But that being said, like judged on an individual movie versus movie basis i definitely liked this more i did find the the mapping of a mad scientist onto a makeup artist to be a little odd i understand why it's here especially as we noted with the like lionel atwell vincent price wax creator mm -hmm. artist character that has existed in horror movies i thought this was going to be more of a uh he does makeup on himself and he goes and kills. Right. You thought this would be like Clayface, like Basil yeah. Carlo from Batman comics. Yeah. That's what I thought this was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and he does that like one time. One time. And like, because he's like, oh shit, we're going to be found out by this random security guard. So I was a little disappointed with that, um, especially because the, like it's an old fashioned trope that they're leaning on. But on the other hand, this way they got to reuse some old makeups that, from old movies that cost them money. Sure, sure. <laughs> so with that in mind, I wasn't looking as high as you. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of made Teen Werewolf my floor at 49. Because like I said, I wasn't really sure how to compare the two trends. And I stopped at 45, El Vampiro, um, because that, that movie like, has some real serious chills so then we've identified like the similarity in character types. So let's say like head to head this versus House of Wax. Well, I will say that 
the idea, okay, so I'm willing to forgive how to make a monster's deviations into here's the Elvis Presley dude mm-hmm. um, because we are seeing things like behind the scenes. Yeah. And, and it helps like give you that plot element of like, these are the types of movies that are coming in to replace you. Whereas whenever House of Wax had a deviation for, you know, its own reasons, but let's take the ping pong, for example, it kind of stops the movie yeah, and is like, look at our technological innovation. It's coming right at you, Fair. which like, you know, that's that's a fine like thing that you are trying to do, but it does stop the movie. Whereas at least in How to Make a Monster, I'm a little bit more forgiving of it. Yeah, like if you see House of Wax without 3D, it's still a good movie, but there are parts of the movie that stand out as like, why is this here? Mm-hmm. If you saw this movie without the gimmick of like the last reel being in color, it would still be this movie. You would still enjoy it. You wouldn't get the fun of seeing like, hey, what color was Bula actually? <laughs> um, turns out like real angry red, but you'd still enjoy the movie. It's it's not drawing attention to itself with that gimmick. Mm-hmm. So I think in that, in that context, okay, so I'm hesitating here because in that context, that would lead me to go like, okay, how to make a monster goes above House of Wax. But Robert Harris isn't Vincent Price. And the horror in House of Wax is much more. It has Charles Bronson. And like, I'm even thinking of like the way the climax is shot. Um, all of those shadows, the shadows in How to Make a Monster, like they're doing shadows. They are making a horror movie with all of its aesthetic. But I don't know. It just felt more powerful in House of Wax. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, How to Make a Monster sort of might stand the test of time a little better and it has i think more the subject matter has more interest to like a horror movie fan because of the meta mm-hmm. elements but i think in terms of like having an effect on an audience this is a really like tame movie in terms of uh like gore and stuff versus like what we've been seeing lately in 1958 mm-hmm. um and as you said kind of an old-fashioned story so judging them as like movies um i think i like how to make a monster more i think if you said like hey which of these two do you want to watch right now i'd be like yeah i'll watch how to make a monster again the same day sure but in terms of like horror movies i'm inclined to agree with you about house of wax being better okay yeah personally i if i had to choose between uh sitting down and watching how to make a monster or house of wax i would choose house of wax what about Queen of Spades? Um, I would probably choose How to Make a Monster. Queen of Spades is really well made, but the horror in that movie comes in like certain waves. scenes. Yeah, it comes in waves. Exactly. Yeah. And especially the ending, it's more of a quiet horror because yeah. he's gone mad. Yeah. It's a fucking Twilight Zone episode, basically. Yeah. Versus this movie ending in like flames. Right. Exactly. Okay, I'm good with settling here then. Coming in at the new number 47 is How to Make a Monster from 1958, directed by Herbert Strock. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, 
or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. And if you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or a review, which fuels the algorithm, which puts the show in front of the eyes of so many people. In front of the ears. Well, I mean the eyes when they're like scrolling through the the apps on their phones you oh, know sure, that's sure, what the sure. algorithm is good for um if you want to do the algorithm's job for it share the show on social media uh in your day-to-day life tell people about it um make the people carpooling to work with you listen to it uh <laughs> spread the word uh word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience if you have the financial means, we would also appreciate it if you headed on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and $10 level get access to regular bonus content and all patrons get to participate in our monthly votes on what our horror adjacent bonus episode is. Uh, January's will be the mask of Fu Manchu coming out this saturday and that is going to be just a lot of episode let me tell you just a lot (laughs) um so look forward to that yeah and then you'll be able to vote for february's episode as well that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben next week's film is another american like indie b horror movie um it is called i bury the living Yeah. Cool. It's going to be easy to catch you if you're already writing out your confessions, my guy. <laughs> but uh, cool. All right. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.